Well, begin with a confession, as I uh, need to do sometimes. This one's about our kids, though. <laughs> our kids in the Thomas family, and there are a gaggle of them, as many of you are aware, love to eat at Bob Evans. I, I don't know what the appeal is. Okay, actually, I do know what the appeal is. I just don't like to admit it. It's totally the piggy pancakes. <laughs> Golly. Now, what four-year-old would say no to that? Talk about a marketing gotcha for Bob Evans. Anyway, when our second son, Noah, was little, he couldn't pronounce Bob Evans, so he referred to it as Bob Heavens. <laughs> and that stuck. So speaking of stuck, actually, one time we were at uh, Bob Heavens, and the, the very same Noah Thomas managed to get an ice cube lodged in his throat. Talk about scary. Anyone ever been around a choking kid before? Man alive. It is about as scary as you can get. And by God's grace, somehow we managed to get that ice cube out, even if, I'll add, Lindsay was a little critical of my Heimlich maneuver techniques. <laughs> they worked. But you know what I don't remember about that meal? Anything else. I don't remember anything we had to eat because we were so shocked what happened in that moment there at Bob Heavens was, was so massive. We were so overwhelmed and overshadowed by that crisis that everything else just sort of faded away. And today, we'll be reading about events from the life and ministry of Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, and all these events that we're preparing to read about take place around a single meal. Interestingly enough, we hear nothing about the food at all. We don't know whether they were eating lamb or something else. Because what Jesus does and what Jesus says here in our passage today is so shocking. It is so otherworldly that really nothing else matters. I want you to take a look with me here. Please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 14. If you're using our church Bible, that's found on page 820. Luke 14 will begin in verse 1 and we'll read to verse 24. This is God's word to us, God's people. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, 
Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. One of those who reclined at table with him heard these things. He said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is God's Word. Well, as we've observed, everything we've just read here at the beginning of Luke 14 takes place around the same mealtime conversation. We're going to break this table talk down this morning into four separate parts. We'll begin with the Sabbath miracle in verses 1 to 6. Then we'll take a peek at the parable aimed specifically at the banquet guests in verses 11, excuse me, 7 to 11. Then thirdly, we'll look at a lesson for the host of the banquet in verses 12 to 14 and finish with the longest segment from Jesus, a parable in response to one guy's comment, the guy who said that blessed would those be who got the chance to eat bread in the kingdom of God, verses 15 to 24. There's the outline, and without a doubt, the whole thing starts off, this whole account, with a bang, as Jesus literally performs a miracle in front of their very eyes. You see, a prominent Pharisee has invited Jesus to eat at his house. And, and if this scene is starting to sound familiar, it's because we've seen it multiple times already, even here within the Gospel of Luke. 
We saw back in chapter 7, a sinful woman, that's what Jesus called her, at banquet or at meal, at table with, with Jesus, invited to the house of a Pharisee of all people. She was wedding his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. She was anointing him with, with oil. That was a meal at the house of a Pharisee in Luke 7. We saw recently in Luke chapter 11, Jesus dining at another Pharisee's house, and he had a lot to say as he pronounced woe upon woe to his host and those in attendance to the Pharisees and to the teachers and experts of the law. Here we have Jesus again for the third time in Luke's gospel dining with the Pharisees. Let's just pause for a moment before we continue working our way through the text. Does this teach us anything about Jesus, about His nature, about His character? Well, sure, I think Jesus eating often with the Pharisees speaks a lot to His nature and character. Consider these two things briefly. First, His courage. These Pharisees didn't have a kind word to say to Jesus. And you kind of get the impression at the beginning of Luke 14 that they're setting a trap, right? They invite him over to their house, and then, behold, there's a man with dropsy right in front of them on the Sabbath, and they're watching him closely, the text says. Why does Jesus eat with these people who are out to get him? You see, Jesus has already been teaching us that we ought to love even our enemies. And He is modeling here for us. Consider the courage of Jesus. Consider also the grace of our Lord, who although against Him at every turn, did not write the Pharisees off. As a matter of fact, He's about to, to preach the gospel to them. He loves them enough to warn them, to rebuke them for their sin and for their folly. We'll see in uh, another week or two the parable of, of the prodigal son, which is in part about a prodigal son, but which is actually written to or about the elder brother, Pharisee type. Man, resist the urge to preach that one now. Will there be Pharisees? Here's a question. Any Pharisees in the kingdom of heaven? Well, sure. You remember a little guy by the name of the Apostle Paul? Or how about Nicodemus, who didn't get it at first, but by God's grace after the resurrection was, was drawn to Christ savingly? Some people wonder whether Joseph of Arimathea was also a Pharisee. We don't know, but there's some extra-biblical literature, uh, literature excuse me, that, that might seem to indicate so. There will be Pharisees in heaven, saved by grace, through faith, in Christ and Christ alone. Look at Jesus' courage. Look at His love. Look at His grace here, loving on His enemies. And yet here, in the midst of His grace... We see unbelief around this dinner table as thick as pea soup, as my grandfather would say. Look at verse 1 again. It tells us as much. They were watching him closely. And behold, the man's there with dropsy. Now, what's dropsy? 
I know, I had to look it up, probably just like you need someone to tell you too. Dropsy is a condition, a medical condition, that causes an excess amount of accumulation of fluid in the body, perhaps in a particular body cavity like the abdomen, or perhaps all throughout the body. This would produce dangerous swelling. It's often indicative of uh, the liver or another part of the body starting to shut down. Dropsy. Now, Biblical commentators are split as to whether this guy with dropsy is a plant or not. Did the Pharisees intentionally put this guy there to implicate Jesus for teaching on the Sabbath? Well, I don't know. If I was a betting man, I'd say probably yeah, but but that's not the point of the text here. You should notice also that no one is posing any questions to Jesus in this account, are they? At the beginning of chapter 14, no one's asking, asked him a question yet, at least overtly. And yet the text says that Jesus responded to them. Well, how's that work? Was he having a conversation with himself? No, he responded to them because he knows what's going on in their hearts and in their heads, and Jesus responds by addressing the elephant in the room. There's a man there with dropsy, and he said, look at verse 3, here's the million-dollar question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? By the way, this is not a new question, is it? Like we've just been ringing this bell about every other week or so. He's already answered this question. We've seen it not once, not twice, but three times already in Luke's gospel to this point. With divine power and clarity, Jesus has said and demonstrated over and over and over again what is permissible on the Sabbath. He said, I'm the Sabbath's Lord, I made it. And I get to control what happens on this day. He had, he had told us, if you remember, just two weeks ago here at FCC, we covered Luke 13 with a woman who was bent over with what Scripture calls a disabling spirit on the Sabbath day. Jesus heals her. Back in Luke 4, Jesus had performed back-to-back healings, a man who also had a, uh, an unclean spirit, and then he turns right around and goes into Peter. Peter's house, Simon Peter, where he heals his mother-in-law on the Sabbath day. And then in Luke 6, man, if you want a refresher on this, just make a note to yourself. Read Luke 6. Jesus heals a man with a withered hand and goes to great pains to explain to all those with an earshot of him, we still have his words we're repeating 2,000 years later, that yes, It is good and right to heal and perform acts of mercy on His Sabbath. As far as Jesus is concerned, this case is closed. But the Pharisees aren't letting it go, are they? So so they're sitting with awkward silence as Jesus is pointing to the elephant in the corner of the room. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They're just sort of gawking. And... Jesus proceeds to do two things. First, Jesus heals. Then, Jesus appeals. First, he he proves that his message is a divine message from God. He proves that God is behind healing on the Sabbath by, get this, 
healing on the Sabbath. Man with dropsy, miraculously, immediately, in front of everyone's eyes, is healed. It's interesting that Jesus sends him away, doesn't he? So he probably didn't actually have an invitation to the dinner now. He heals! And then Jesus appeals to their logic, to their sense of justice, with another one of his lesser to greater than arguments. We've seen this before. He says, it's not a breach of the law to rescue your son. Some translations say donkey. Same difference, I guess. (laughs) To rescue your son or your donkey or your ox. If it was to fall in a cistern or a pit or a well on the Sabbath day, would you let it drown? Would you say, oh, that's too bad, son. Just hang on till twilight. No, he said, you'd pull him out of that pit, and you know better. You know better. For the last time, it's as if Jesus is saying, yes, it is lawful to heal, to perform works of charity and mercy on the Sabbath. And although Jesus has demonstrated and spoken and taught with such unparalleled power and unquestioning authority. The, the, the folks here are just left speechless. Isn't that how the account ends in verse 6? They could not reply to these things. But you got to ask this question. Did they have a change of heart though they knew the right answer? Well, no, actually. In fact, this is a huge factor in the Pharisees continuing to want to kill him. John tells us as much, the Apostle John in John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Well, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, there's one strike. He was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Why did they want to kill him? Because he said he was God. I'll do it. And he was breaking the Sabbath. You don't touch those things. You don't touch God's divinity. You don't touch touch God's holy Sabbath day. Now before we rush on in our account, let's pause here for a moment. A pull up for air as we sometimes say. As a, for a moment of application. Does this mean anything for us? I think we can learn a very important lesson from the sad and sinful response of the Pharisees here. Just because God has spoken clearly, listen now, just because God has spoken clearly does not mean that people will like or accept His answer. True or false? Now that'll preach. What should I do about that? Well, God has spoken clearly about many things in His Word. I'm not talking about finding some contested place in Scripture where there's uh, righteous, faithful, godly, spirit-filled people who are having respectful disagreements about matters of secondary doctrine. I'm not talking about this, but I'm talking about when God has been clear in His Word. about his authority, 
about his sovereignty, about the nature of human sexuality. Oh, he went there. About gender roles, about male headship in the family and in the church, about the sanctity of human life, about the exclusivity of the gospel. Has God spoken clearly about these things? Every single one of them and more. And yet we regularly see people doing what? Well, they're reading a text where God clearly says A, and what are they telling you to do? Not A. I call it origami with the pages of Scripture. They just fold and twist and and manipulate the pages of Scripture around to get it to say whatever they think they want it to say. Friends, this happens all around us. Where God has spoken clearly, and you get somebody too big for their spiritual britches presuming to tell you that what God really means is the opposite of what He's clearly said. Beware. That is a dangerous spiritual environment. Get out of there. Confront. It could be that there's deception. It could be that there's, there's, there's honest uh, deceit, or, or excuse me, I guess deceit wouldn't be honest, but there's, there's someone who just honestly doesn't see the Scriptures the way that they were intended to be written. But, but beware of this. When God has spoken clearly... And it rubs against everything our society, our culture, our hearts are telling us. We've got a question of authority here. Is this Word, the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, eternal, our final authority for life and living? Or is what Oprah said? Or is what I feel? Or is what my friend believes? No. No, this applies to our life just like it did to theirs. When God speaks and we desperately want Him to say something else, we have the opportunity, as we often say here at FCC, to point the chisel at God's Word or to turn it inward and point it at our own sinful hearts. God is our maker, He's our sustainer, and He, friends, calls the shots, and His Word is the final authority. All right, let's move on. Everyone is gawking here. After verse 6, excuse me, they're sputtering, they're speechless, but Jesus isn't done. It's time for a parable. And Jesus' parable in these following verses, verses 7 to 11, is sort of like a live-action version of Proverbs. Of Proverbs 25, specifically, Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. I'll just read it to you. Uh, you can jot down that reference if you, if you want to uh, circle back later. Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence... Or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Has God already told them this lesson? Yeah. Yeah. 
It's helpful, I think, also, as we're interpreting here what's happening in Luke 14, to understand that in this time and in this culture, your place at the dinner table was reflective of your social status, of your position. That is, the closer you were sitting to the host, the greater the honor. But but although that was true, that was a readily accepted social norm of the time, there were not necessarily assigned seats at these banquet tables. Sort of like Southwest Airlines boarding policy, you know? It's first come, first serve, and all the sinful humanity works out its business boarding the flight. You see, you were free to choose your own seat, but you had to be smart about it. I mean, come on. Jesus says, if you choose the seat of honor, you just waltz in and sit next to the host. But you like barely got invited to the party, right? Your first time there. You're just asking for humiliation. He's going to say, all right, why why, why don't you head on down the table and he's going to invite someone who belongs in that place of honor to that higher level. Seat. You get the point, right? Jesus is saying, it's a very simple parable. He's, he's pointing out the Pharisees' need for recognition. These religious leaders were so consumed with securing their position that they lacked the humility to see their need for the Savior who was sitting right in front of them. And rather than trusting their place at the table and in life to the Master... They're wrapped up in a game of self-advancing musical chairs. So, it is humility here in Jesus' parable. Humility at one end of the spectrum versus self-advancement, self-exaltation on the other. And the punchline of Jesus' parable is right at the end. Look at verse 11. It's really pretty simple. Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be what? Yeah, will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the issue, Jesus says. It's the question in their hearts and in ours. Are you out to exalt yourself? Or are you seeking humility? Are you willing to wait for the Master to move your seat? That's what he has in mind. So, we've got Jesus' truth before us, and the question is, how, how do we, again, here in this section about this parable, how do we be doers of this word, like James says, not hearers only? Specifically, here's the question, how do we, in 2024, presume to walk through life following Jesus with humility? Well, three, three points, if I may, three points for application. One, a pitfall to avoid when you're trying to walk in humility. Two, a scripture to memorize as you're trying to walk in humility. And three, an example to follow. A pitfall to avoid, a scripture to memorize, an example to follow. Let's hit them all briefly. First, a pitfall to avoid. That is, trying to make biblical humility into something that it isn't. False humility, that's what we call it, right? Or misapplied humility. 
I've, uh, I've had C.S. Lewis uh, classic work, screw tape letters on my mind. There's a couple guys in our what we call our crack dawn Bible study Tuesday at 5.30 in the morning who've been reading this and referencing it. So I was, I was thinking about screw tape letters, and, and as I was reading through this parable today, it struck me. C.S. Lewis, in one of his screw tape letters, gives, I think, the best illustration of what humility is, or should I say, what humility isn't, that I've ever heard. A pitfall to avoid. Well, one of the ways that we don't want to try to walk in humility is by trying to make humility something that it's not. Screw Tape Letters, if you're unfamiliar with it, is a work of fiction written in the 1940s, and C.S. Lewis is writing it about spiritual warfare. He's, he's writing from the perspective, it's kind of dark now, I'm like trying to explain it out loud. He's writing from the perspective of a demon, a senior demon, a senior devil who is mentoring a junior demon named Wormwood, screw tapes the senior demon, he's, he's writing to mentor this lesser demon on the art of temptation. And so it's written from that perspective. They're, they're trying to tempt and trip up this man who's recently come to Christ, the patient they call him. Let me, let me read you here what, what they have to say about humility. This is so good. C.S. Lewis, uh, letter 14, screw tape letter 14. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. Listen now. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they're ugly and clever men trying to believe they are fools. And since what they're trying to believe may in some cases be manifest nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it, and we have the chance to keep their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to achieve the impossible. Isn't that good? Here's what Lewis says humility is not. Humility is not the pretty girl thinking that she's ugly. That's just a lie. That's false information. That's not humility. The hum- humility is merely the pretty girl thinking of herself less often and puffing herself up because she's pretty. This, friends, I think, helps us see a pitfall to avoid. When you're trying to walk in humility as you follow Christ, don't try to pretend your way there. By denying things that are obviously true, whether about you or about anyone else. That's not humility. Second thing that we can keep in mind as we're trying to walk in humility, and it's a scripture to memorize. This is like one of my top ten. Galatians 1.10. I'm embarrassed to say what's in my heart is made of the same stuff that's in the Pharisee's heart, and I'd be willing to wager you've got to ounce or two of that yourself. We are all prone to, to pride. And one of the ways to get there 
is by trying to promote yourself or look good before man. The Bible calls that the fear of man. Rather than fearing God alone and His thoughts, His impression, His assessment of your character, we clamor to climb the social ladder to, to feel more important about ourselves by looking good in front of others. The approval of man, that's what we're seeking. Here's what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Rather than clamoring for the approval of others, rather than vis-a-vis Luke 14, scheming and cajoling your way to find the best seat at the table, strive to please your Maker. It really is impossible to do both, to straddle the fence, pleasing man and pleasing God. A pitfall to avoid, a Scripture to memorize. Here's the last thing. Uh, To help us, I think, practically walk in humility And it's just to lay before you an example to follow. You see, what Jesus is teaching here in this parable is not some sort of hypothetical theory. No, He's telling them to do something that He is, in fact, in the very process of doing. Never, never had there been the case of one higher in status who had taken a lower seat. Never have we seen such lowly humility exercised by the one who had been from eternity past seated on heaven's throne as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, consider Jesus who humbled Himself to the least and the lowest place who took the last seat so that you and I could have a seat at the table of God. Isn't that what Donna read? Just a moment ago in Philippians 2, that Jesus didn't count equality with God, which He had as something to be grasped. Yet He humbled Himself, taking the form of the servant, being born in human flesh, humbling Himself even to the point of death, to death on the cross. Friends, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we seek to emulate and walk in the steps of our Savior, we won't feel quite as slighted when we are overlooked, when we are bypassed, when we don't get what we think is due to us. In the end, we trust ourselves to God as we faithfully walk the path He's laid out for Him, and we just trust Him with the results. Come what may, they will be in Christ eternally better than what we deserve. All right. Jesus had been directing this parable about where to sit at the dinner table toward the guests, toward those who'd been invited to this meal from this chief of the Pharisees. But Jesus does not let the host go scot-free, does He? Now look at verse 12 now. He's got a word for the host too. This one comes with a bit of shock value. Let's just read it again briefly. Pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 14. He also said to the man who had invited him, who's that? The host. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers 
or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Sort of interesting to note, I think, that Jesus seems to have no trouble telling people what to do. He's just told the religious authorities what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Then he proceeds to tell the guests where they can and cannot sit around the table. And now, here he is presuming to tell the host who he should and shouldn't invite into his own home. Golly, Jesus. Who's this guy think he is? Well, Jesus knows a thing or two about authority. He's the co-creator of the cosmos. He's the one who tells the waves how far they can and cannot lap up onto the seashore. I'm just saying, when he speaks, we ought to listen. Now, hopefully, it goes without saying in this next passage in Jesus' instruction about who the man can and cannot invite to his party, hopefully Jesus' intent here isn't taken too far. Certainly, friends, Jesus is not forbidding family meals or sweet times of food and fellowship with friends. After all, he himself taught and modeled the importance of caring for your family, and he ate often with his friends and his disciples. We see in John 11, he's, he's very close with Mary and Martha and their, their brother Lazarus. He ate with them often. Jesus is not saying that you can never have a family meal or a sweet fellowship with your friends. He's not saying... Either that every time you take a bite, there's got to be someone in close proximity who is poor or crippled or lame or blind. What he's saying, the broader principle is quite clear. Look, look, look at it visually here. We've got to project it up on the screen. I want you to see this. He says it not once, but twice. Why, when you're, when you're hosting like this, should you invite the least of these? Well, he says in verse 12, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't just invite the folks that you want to invite, lest, here's, here's his rationale, lest they also invite you in return and you be, what's that word? Repaid. Now watch, we're going to see the same word again. Invite the least of these. Now take note, we're going to see this same exact list. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. We're going to see it again later. Why would you invite them? Kind of a bit of a socially shocking statement. He says, because they cannot, same word, repay you. What's the point Jesus is driving towards? Well, he's, he's making a point about our reward, our repayment. He's making a point about our motivation. The point is that, that we can be motivated by one of two things. We can be motivated by a reciprocal kind of reward. I'm going to invite these people because that's going to work well for me socially. Maybe they'll invite me back or maybe I'll just look good for having all these important people over at my house or maybe I can show off my Martha Stewart skills and they'll think well of me. 
There's a number of different motivations. But Jesus is getting at, he's driving at their their heart posture. Where's your reward? He's saying you can get a reciprocal reward from inviting the people who are highest in your social scale, or you can receive instead a future reward, what he calls here a resurrection reward for people inviting people who can't repay you here on this side of the sun. Your heavenly Father, he said, will pay you and then some on the day of resurrection. This is Jesus' broader point that we should be motivated as we walk through life, even in little things like the guest list and our invitations, the way we treat other people socially, the way that we entertain. We should be motivated by eternal rewards rather than temporal rewards or social status. And lest we not forget, we dare not skip this part, Jesus cares not just for the powerful and the privileged. He does eat often with the Pharisees. But man, does he have a heart for the poor and the needy. And church, so should we as well. You want to apply this passage? Here's one way. (laughs) One glaring in in, in your eyes application. Remember the poor. Invite them, he said. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Again, we'll see those four designations again in just a a moment. Because your reward's not here, it's later if you're in Christ. Does God have anything else to say about the poor? Sure, all kinds of stuff. We don't have time to to flesh out the, the doctrine of God's grace to those who are poor and need. Just a couple snippets. Proverbs 14.31 Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So let's just make it personal before we finish out the last chunk of Scripture here. Ask yourself, do I have a framework? Not them, not us. Do I have a framework for ministering to those in need? Have I left margin in my life to help those? The Old Testament tells us to do it by by not gleaning the edges of your field. I don't know how many of you have got fields that you haven't gleaned the edges of, but there are practical ways for us to work out that spiritual principle. Are you living at capacity... So much so that you're unable to help friends or neighbors or folks who are in need as those needs arrive. Remember the Apostle Paul? You know, the the one who was carrying the gospel all throughout the known world, planting churches? Remember when the apostles gave to Paul and Barnabas the very right hand of their ministry? He's recounting that story in Galatians chapter 2, and he says, they... Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This can get uncomfortable for us because we're thinking of government and and, and forced generosity and all kinds of other things. Get that out of your mind. This is your Savior 
saying, you should live a generous life. You should care for the poor. And he doesn't tell us exactly how we ought to do that. We're free to choose. We're free to structure. But golly, if your Savior is telling you to do it, if the Apostle Paul, as he's carrying out gospel works, is saying, hey, the one thing I was eager not to forget was to forget the poor. I, I definitely don't want to do that. Now, we've got to make sure that this is somewhere in our spiritual framework as well. Now, gospel caution, because we're famous for overcorrecting, Jesus is not saying, run with the social gospel. He's not saying that the way that you get into the kingdom is by ministering to the poor. Remember last week? The only way you get into the kingdom is by entering through the narrow door whose name is Jesus. That's the only way you get into the kingdom. Caring for the poor, then, church, is a fruit of salvation, not the root of it. It's a byproduct, having a heart for those who are in need. It's not how you get in the door of heaven. All right, last section. Jesus has just finished talking about eternal rewards. The resurrection of the just, he says. And then someone picks up, almost like an interruption, and exclaims in verse 15, Blessed, speaking of the resurrection of the just, blessed are those who are there. Blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Very interesting. And what's also very interesting is Jesus aims this last parable directly at this guy. Directly at that statement. How do you know that? How do you know it's just for him? Well, because we see in verse 16, but he said to him, and then he tells the parable. Now, let's not forget, as we're trying to understand this last banquet parable, that in Scripture, one repeated image of salvation is that of a feast, of a heavenly banquet. We looked at Isaiah 25 recently where we saw a feast of rich food and aged wine. Revelation 19.9 describes heaven as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So please don't miss this. What we're talking about, what Jesus is talking about here is eternal life. It's also helpful to know that in this culture, in this time, it was customary to give out two invitations before a meal, before a feast. They'd send out the first invitation. You know, there wasn't like RSVP online or any of those handy things. They'd send out the first invitation, and they would receive commitments of those who were attending. And then they would send out a second invitation after they had gone ahead and killed the, the proper number of animals they needed to prepare for this feast because they knew who was on the RSVP list. They would send out a second invitation to say, dinner served. Come on. It's ready. The first invitation has gone out. You've got to understand this. These people who are rejecting the invitation to dinner have already committed to go. Does that help? They've already pledged to come. 
So then you ask yourself, well, well, well what, what made them go back on their word? What, what made them not attend the invitation? Well, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, we don't need to talk about them in detail. I bought a field. Got to go inspect it. It was unthinkable at that time, by the way, to, to purchase land in the ancient Near East without knowing every nook and cranny of that real estate. An excuse. Second guy says, I bought five yoke of oxen. Well, this guy was either loaded or stupid. Because you didn't buy five oaks, yoke of oxen without first inspecting them to make sure that they could pull together, that they were worth. I mean, this was a, this was a fortune. Five yoke of oxen? And buying five tractors. Last guy says, verse 20, I've married a wife. Yeah, and you didn't know that when you said yes to the invitation a couple days prior? Now, I, I don't know. Maybe these things seem like legitimate things in the eyes of those who are ignoring the second dinner invitation, the second banquet invitation. But Jesus seems to see through their self-justifying rationale and calls it what it is. Look at, look at what he says in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. Which is why one faithful Bible commentator, Leon Morris, refers to this parable as the parable of the excuses. What's the lowest common denominator? Well, these people are putting the affairs of everyday life before the things of the kingdom of God. Now, we would never do that, would we? You tell me. Is this applicable to our lives in 2024? A gracious invitation to dine with the master of the kingdom, and yet busyness and commitments to our everyday lives, what Scripture calls elsewhere the cares of this world, keep us trying to straddle the fence with God. So ask yourself just this simple question this morning. Are there worldly concerns that keep me from kingdom commitments that God has laid before me? Jesus calls them excuses. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. He'll take care of the rest. What's the master's response? Quickly here in verse 21. He's angry. Well, if those who are on the first invitation list... Go back on their commitment. They're not coming. Go out to the streets and lanes within the city. That's an interesting note. He's saying, bring in the outcasts. The, maybe you've heard this part before. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Same four categories we saw back in th- verse 13. These represent the, the marginalized, the oppressed, those who are the least of these in Israel, among the people of God. And a great example was the guy with dropsy who he had just healed. The only one who doesn't get an earful at this dinner. And then, after inviting to this heavenly banquet all the poor and least of these, he says, I'm not done. My table will be full. Go out also, he tells his servant, to the highways and the hedges. Where, where, where are those? 
Those are outside the city. What's he talking about? He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about you and me. And he says, compel them to come in. That's an interesting word, compel, here in verse 23. It's a strong word in the Greek language. It can mean to press, to exert pressure upon, even to force. Now, it's highly unlikely that Jesus is talking about assaulting people into the kingdom of heaven. But the point is, obviously, more than just a casual, would you like to go? No. This is a strong, forceful appeal. And if you're here today, and you are outside the kingdom of heaven, if Jesus is not your Lord, or you're not sure if He is, we here at Friendship Community Church, with as much grace and love as we can muster, want to appeal to you. We want to compel you today. Follow Jesus. Do not let any other sins, any other worldly commitments, any other affiliations keep you from Christ's everlasting banquet. And if you're here today and you're in, and you know you're in by the grace of God because the blood of Jesus, when He died on the cross for your sin, has covered you and you're clothed in His righteousness, well, praise God, and I'll give you this before you go out the door. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are like that servant. We are Christ's ambassadors. God making His appeal through us. Then He writes, we implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. The real clincher here comes right at the end. In verse 24, when Jesus breaks out of parable mode, I'm wondering if you caught this. Jesus slips out of parable mode and He says, for None of those men who were invited and rejected the invitation to the heavenly banquet, none of those men who were invited shall taste. No, wait a minute. It's his banquet. He's been talking about his banquet this whole time. Remember how the parable started? There was a guy who said, blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus told him a parable. The guy who said, blessed are those who get to eat heavenly bread. And then at the end of his parable, Jesus says, by the way, I tell you, plural. Now he's talking to everybody. It's my banquet. That's what I'm telling you, Jesus is saying. It's my feast. Here you are, Pharisees, jockeying for the best seats around this measly table when I am here to offer you my invitation to an eternal banquet. After all, isn't that what Jesus has been doing this whole time? We've been in Luke a while. What's he keep saying? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. It's Come, it's at hand. The choice for you and for me is excuse or exhilaration. 
around the table of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gracious invitation to join the wedding supper of the Lamb. To feast for all eternity on rich food and aged wine, Lord, to, to, to enjoy your fellowship in eternal bliss. Lord, thank you that you loved us so much that despite our sin, despite our shame, you, you, you humbled yourself and you walked this earth and you lived a perfect life and you died the death that we deserved and you invited everybody, the poor and the lame and the blind and the cripple and the Pharisees alike to humble themselves and enter heaven through the the only door, the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. Your own name. And so we pray here this morning that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that if there are any here who have not trusted in Christ for their eternal salvation, Lord, that you, that you would open their eyes, that you would draw them in, that you would compel them with your love. And I pray, Lord, for those of us here on this normal January afternoon who are yours, Lord, I pray that you would make us joyful ambassadors of Jesus. Teach us to compel well. Teach us, Lord, to share this news with everybody like you taught us to. And we're trusting you, Lord, to build your church. You're in charge of the results. So we honor you and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and King. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.